Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. I never had enough confidence to leave for myself. But when my little girl came, I remember we were driving in the car on the way to an Easter service and we had gotten into some kind of argument, probably about time, because I love to be on time. And my ex-husband just didn't really care. <laughs> and we started yelling in the car and screaming and cursing. And I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw fear in my daughter's eyes for the first time. And I just was like, I think I'm done. Because what I thought was maybe I'm not worthy of like a new life and another opportunity, but she really is. This is Where You're From, an origin story podcast at the intersection of faith and culture that digs into the influences and experiences that shape who we are today. Join us as we gain insight into the Bible's wisdom for all, regardless of where we're from. Hey, y'all, this is Russell Berry. Thanks for joining me on Where You're From. This week, I want to share my conversation with Tony Collier. Tony is a speaker, author, podcast host, and the founder of an international women's organization called Broken Crayons Still Color. Love that name. Tony is committed to helping all Christians, but especially women, process through brokenness toward healing and hope. You can find out more about Tony by clicking the links in the show notes or by visiting whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from.org. Please join me as I ask Tony Collier, where you're from. I'm from Houston, Texas, baby. <laughs> the best, let me tell you, the best state in the world or the best country in the world, however you view Texas is up to you, okay? But that's where I'm from. Y'all are loud and proud with y'all, isn't it? Yes. And we a little crazy too, but we own it. <laughs> Don't we? Okay. So what do you love about specifically Houston? Oh my gosh. Honestly, the diversity. Mm. There was so much diversity growing up that I was ignorant to a lot of mm. the racial tensions in the world mm. because it's everywhere. The food, the authenticity, like the music, it's mixed. We have our own sound. And I think that's just something really to love about Houston. Yeah. One of the largest and most diverse places in the country right there. And if you want to get a good turkey leg, then I know the where to go. The turkey leg hut <laughs> had it about four days ago with the crawfish mac and cheese on top. Yeah. Yes, I did. Yeah. And it's a whole vibe going there too. It is a vibe. It is a vibe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned growing up, you saw a lot of diversity. Tell us yeah. a little bit more about what life was like for you growing up. What was the family situation and yeah. all that? Well, it's interesting because I always kind of split my childhood into two segments, if you will. When I was first born, I mean, I was born into a blended family. My mom and dad had gotten together after they had both been married and divorced. My mom was in a really abusive marriage and she brought her son into a marriage with my dad and my dad brought his two sons mm -hmm. into the marriage. So there were three boys and they were like, we are done having kids. Like, do not make eye contact with me kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and my mom was like, psych. Like, no, like I want a kid like in our family. I feel like it's just gonna make our family whole as we come together. And so then she got pregnant with me and my dad was like, this is about to be wild. This is one of the most, my most favorite things about my childhood is that coming into the world, I was actually dying. So the umbilical cord was wrapped around my neck mm. and I was losing oxygen rapidly and no one noticed except for my dad. And so mm. my dad rushes in. He's like, the cord's around her neck. She's blue. Poor thing. They cut it really quickly. My dad saved my life. And so I came into the world with three older brothers. The last brother before me is seven years older than me. So literally my parents had like settled in. Mm -hmm. They were like, this is it. And then here I come, Princess T in the building. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> 
And it was just normal, right? Like I had these three older brothers. They were in football. We had this blended family lifestyle with their moms as well. And then when I was in about third grade, my mom had a massive stroke and it kind of like restarted our family. We we became real disjointed and it just became really dark in so many ways. And mm-hmm. so the latter half of my childhood from about eight to, you know, 16, when I left the house, was just really dark. Mm. My mom was really sick. My dad was working all the time to kind of numb from the pain. He had some alcoholic issues and mm. my brothers went to go live with their moms and a few of my brothers went to drugs and alcohol and wow. gang life. So it's interesting because I have a very, wow. feels like a little coin, like there's a tails and a heads, you know, mm. it was a very different life. So you mentioned you were in third grade. Like, yeah. when do you remember hearing about the stroke. Well, what's interesting is I didn't have to hear about it at all. It was a Saturday in November. There was leaves outside in Houston, Texas. And I was going to a Jet Stars cheerleading game. I was like a little competitive cheerleader cheering on the little little league football team. And my mom was getting ready to take me one morning and I pop out of my bedroom and she's on our blue leather couch with my dad saying that the room was spinning. And my brothers are outside and they're raking up leaves because it's fall. And I'm just like, well, what can I do? Like, can I get some water? I'm, you know, eight years old. I'm like, what's going on? And my dad's just trying to like call the ambulance and the ambulance isn't coming quick enough. And my mom's eyes roll to the back of her head. She starts convulsing. She begins foaming at the mouth. She's having spasms in her face. Her face is shifting uncontrollably. And my dad just made the call. He scooped her up from the couch. We hopped in our Suburban and I hopped in the front seat. My mom's son hops in the back seat with her just to kind of hold her. And mm. I just remember like sitting in the front seat as a little girl and I flipped down the the mirror and I'm looking at my brother and he's just looking down at my mom and he's just got tears in his eyes. And it's crazy because the, the thing that I'm thinking about is what's life going to be like without a mom? Mm. Like, am I going to have to do my own hair? Am I going to have to dress myself for picture day? Who's going to take me to school? How am I going to do this? And um, and thankfully, my mom made it through that. But that was the moment where our entire life shifted and I became a caregiver of my mom. Wow. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit more about that shift and how it impacted you all differently. Yeah. So my mom was the breadwinner. She worked for the hospital. My dad was in manufacturing and construction and things like that. And so he just really had to work overtime. And so we just didn't see him a whole bunch. My two older brothers went to go live with their moms. And my brother right above me really just couldn't handle the pain. Like this just kind of took a toll on him. His dad had OD'd. And so he'd already gone through losing one parent. And now there was the threat of losing another. And unfortunately, he lost his innocence, as I did too. And he just started hanging out with the wrong crowd and kind of went his way. And so it was me and my mom a lot. I remember putting her pills in the little pill boxes Monday through Sunday, you know, and making sure she had what she needed. And going to the hospital with her for my 13th birthday, we were supposed to go on a trip. I would never forget me and my mom and dad. And we were in Walmart and my mom turns to me and she goes, I'm getting ready to have a stroke again. Mm. And so I, I quickly call 911. They come into the parking lot. I was the only one there with her. And so I spent my 13th birthday wow. in a hospital with my mom. And I remember like my life's goal was I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to graduate high school quick and I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to take care of my mama. Mm. Like it was my life dream. But simultaneously, darkness had entered my story. When you have a dad who's working all the time and a mom who's incapable of nurturing, you miss out on those four core things that we all need to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure. There's a lot of sexual manipulation and fondling by older cousins. Like just, I didn't have a lot of protection. And so it got really dark really fast. Mm -hmm. And I also saw miracles. Mm -hmm. I saw my mom who couldn't walk because she was paralyzed on her left side, go to physical therapy for years and go from a wheelchair to a walker to a cane to being able to walk. I saw her bounce back from so many medical illnesses and I just was experiencing the goodness of God in the land of the living without even knowing it. Wow. That is a lot to process from the ages Uh of eight on up, right? Throughout high school. And I know you had mentioned, you know, this idea of this blended family, which had come together soundingly so beautifully, but people handle trauma differently and it impacts all of us. And it seemed like it really put a lot of strain and disconnection where there had previously been connection. So in the midst of that, you know, you are trying to figure out life and yeah. 
You like Shipley Donuts? Love Shipley. I think you said that wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. Love Shipley Donuts. I had one the other day because I flew it from Houston, Texas in my bag to Georgia, and I warmed it up, and I just sat there and ate it right in front of my microwave. And, so, and yeah. this is a Houston staple. Houston staple, baby. But they're expanding uh-huh. because they're amazing. Okay. So clearly donuts mean a lot. And I've read somewhere that somebody caught the wrong end of seeing what happens when they take a donut. <gasps> Can you oh tell gosh. us about that? I'm sh- I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed already. My pits are sweating. But also I shouldn't be because I preach about this all the time. I actually love this moment so much and it goes so well with the story because before I loved Shipley's, what I really loved was the white powder donut. Mm. Them little Debbie or yep. Hostess, the little six pack. Yes. Oh my goodness. I didn't like the chocolate ones Mm-mm. and I didn't like the little coconut That's ones because that, that little stuff yeah. is nasty. And so I remember one time, I, I mean, every day I would like scrounge up change, go to the vending machine and get these little white powder donuts for lunch because I was on free and reduced lunch. You know what I'm saying? Nah, I so I would get my little pizza with the little square pepperonis that had way too much grease on it and my chocolate milk and that nasty little fruit that they would plop on the tray and my white powder donuts. And one day I was sitting with my friends and I ate one and then I ate another one and then I had to go use the bathroom. So I get up and I start walking away. I come back to the table and I said, listen, I got four donuts left. Don't play with me. I go to the bathroom. I come back and there's only three donuts. And when I tell you I lost my actual mind, I was actually like kind of calm at first. Who ate my donuts? Like, who did it? Like, y'all could have just asked. Like, there was something about it. I was like, you could have just asked me. I'm so generous. I would have gave it to you. But y'all ate it. You stole it behind my back. Then I start crying because when you get mad, you cry sometimes when you're a woman. And my best friend, she hasn't said anything at all. And I look over to her and she's just cracking up laughing. But her lips are like shut together. And I see white powder Mm. come out of her mouth and I lose my entire mind. And I'm screaming at her and yelling and the vice principal comes up and she's like, you need to come to my office right now. I was like, no, I don't. She was like, ma'am. I said, okay, so sorry, girl. I get to her office and she asks me, um, what's going on? You're a captain of the cheerleading team. You own the step team. You in the thespian society. You, I mean, what, what, what's happening here? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, nothing. Like just got a little attitude. And she was like, no, really what's going on? And I start crying and It just was the fact that I don't think I had any adults asking me Mm. what was going on in my personal life. And at that point, I was a little older. I'd been taking care of my mom for a while. She had gotten better. But the weight of it had caught up. And I think why I was so mad about my donut was because it was mine. Mm. And when you are a kid and you have the fear every day of losing one of the most important people in your life, your mother... You really hold things closely, mm-hmm. even like donuts. Like this was mine. So much had been taken from me already. Mm-hmm. And so to have someone do that, it just felt like betrayal. It felt like I was really unsafe that someone would steal from me. Yeah. And I was triggered. You know, now we know that word, right? right. I was just deeply triggered. I, you know, I appreciate the story because of its candor, but also, you know, you've, you've written, the truth is that unhealed trauma will keep impacting us. We can't mm. run from it. Yeah. You know, there's this moment where you realize, yeah, I didn't just move on because my mom got better, you know, a little mm. bit. Like there were some yeah. wounds that stayed open. And yeah. you also talk about how that, those four things you mentioned, seen, mm. soothed, safe, and secure. I love that. Yeah. How that even impacted another way of wanting to be seen in terms of relationships. Yeah. And how that mm-hmm. impacted seeing how you saw yourself. Ooh, child. Take us through it. We're human. We just can't handle what we weren't made for. Mm. And we weren't made for trauma. Mm. We weren't designed for darkness. We were made to just be frolicking around, yeah. just basking in the goodness and having an endless supply of glory. Mm. Well, that's what our bodies are still designed for. And so for me, it was hard because I had experienced so much trauma early on. And so when I started leaking, it came out in all the ways that I had a deficit in. So I wasn't really seen because I had to take care of my parents. No one was telling me, you are smart. You are this, you are that. I love how God created you. I wasn't being seen. And so I forced myself to be in the spotlight a lot. So I was a performer. I was in drama club. I wanted people to see me. I stood on a lot of stages. I was captain of the cheerleading team. I was in the step team. I was constantly trying to be in the forefront so someone could just say like, I see you. I see you working hard. I see you are talented. I see how the way God's designed you. 
And unfortunately, when that did not give me that fix, I went to guys Mm. because the one person that I really wanted to see me was my dad. Mm. You know, as women, like we're just so designed to be poured into by healthy men and to have secure attachment to that at the beginning of our days. And I didn't have that. And so when a little boy came around the band and was like, you cute, I mean, I just like melted in his sight. And unfortunately, he was a lot older than me. Um, I was 13, he was 18. And for my freshman year of high school, he just really took advantage of me sexually. And it, then it just escalated from there. Like all I wanted was that again, guys to see me mm. again. And if that meant I had to give up my body, then I was so down mm. because I was so desperate and empty. Because mm. the truth is we were designed to be seen and to be soothed and to be safe and secure. And when we don't get that from secure, healthy attachments, we go looking for it mm. like carnivores, you know? Mm. And so that was a lot of my my high school years, just partying, getting drunk. He introduced me, this older guy, to weed and getting high and drinking out of my mind. Mm. And at 16, I ended up living this double life where I graduated high school in three years because wow. I was a super smart girl and, you know, wanted to just like crush it so that someone could see me, mm. you know, but I was also living this party girl, crazy life. Mm. And I leave my parents' house at 16 and put myself in college, did my own FAFSA form, got all my own financial aid, everything. Wait, let me pause because this double life part of the implication is your parents have yeah. no idea of this kind of alter no. ego. Mm -mm. Well, I didn't want to disappoint them. Mm. Like two Mm. of my older brothers went through, you know, gang life and in and out of jail and all these things. And I was just like, I can't be that person. It's going to break my mom's heart. And yet we leak. Yeah. So we, you know, I could, I hit it all day, but I still needed it. I needed numbing. I needed drugs to help me get through this double life. So I'm curious because I think at different points, sometimes one is forced to sit with this kind of double Mm. life and they can either feel a sense of guilt about it or even pride about look at what I'm pulling off and holding together. How did Mm -hmm. that play out in your mind? I wanted to be the girl that everyone liked, the Mm. girl that everyone saw as well put together. And I wanted to be the girl that still accomplished a lot. I didn't want to fail. I had this performer's heart, this achiever's heart. Like I just wanted to get it right. And by the grace of God, he designed me in that way and gave Mm. me some of those desires. And obviously it's a gift with a shadow side, but I think that's what had me like hold that tension because I equally desired to get it right, to be the fastest, to be amazing as much as I desired to be able to sleep at night. Mm. And the only way that I was able to sleep at night is if I could like numb all the pain Mm so that I could get through. You've written, with maturity and hindsight, I can look Mm -hmm. back over those school years and recognize how some of my behaviors were responses to the trauma I endured. Yeah. At the time, I convinced myself that I was living my best life, but I can see that the pain I was unwilling to face was driving my behavior. My Mm. trauma was still the boss of me. There's a couple things that are interesting for me. Like, at what point Would you say you realize Mm. that the things that people might be looking at from the outside and going, look how much fun she's having. Look, she has it Mm -hmm. all. She's killing it in the classroom. She's the socialite and the queen bee out there. At what point did you realize, no, this wasn't my best life. This was Mm. me being boss and bullied by my trauma. Well, I mean, it was there were points, right? Like the, the first point was when I was 21 and I moved to Georgia with a guy that I'd known for three months. (laughs) And we stumbled into this church that him and his aunt and uncle went to, and I got saved. Mm. And I was like, oh, snap. Like, it's a whole nother life I could be living out here. Mm. But the truth is, I was just a fan of God, not a follower at the beginning. Mm. And most of us are, right? Like, we just say yes to Jesus, and we're like, we just go about living our little lives. Mm. And we don't let conviction wash over us and righteousness wash over us. We just say, we're going to go to church on Sunday and sing louder than the worship leaders because of the little words up on the screen. But our Monday through Saturday is dark and messy mm. and fickle. And that's what I was doing. And so the first point was, yes, I accepted Jesus into my heart. I had access to eternity. But then at 24 and 25, when I went through a really toxic marriage and divorce and had a little girl in that marriage, that's when I was like, Lord, you, well, okay, 
I want to clean this up. Like, what do I need to do to hear your voice for your closeness? Like, I'm at the bottom of the pit right now. I've already endured so much trauma and pain. Then I got into a marriage and endured trauma and pain and abuse. Now I got this little girl like, I want to shift. Like, just make me over. And that's when I became a follower. Mm. And I honestly, if we were to just like highlight a point, I needed salvation to get me there. But when I started to be concerned with my sanctification mm. is when things really shifted for me. Okay. Mm-hmm. There was a lot there. We didn't move yeah. all the way from Houston to Atlanta. So we got to rewind, rewind because y'all. you clearly with your Shipley donuts and mm-hmm. all did, of your barbecue, I'm sure some oh, gosh, burnt yes. tips and all those good oh, things, <laughs> you know, like. Walk us through a three-month yeah. situation that, like, yeah. All right. So, like, <laughs> half a college I don't remember. Okay. Let's start there. Which you started okay. at how old? I started at 17. 17. So, I graduated high school at 16 yeah. in three years. Wow. And then that summer, I went into my dorm, Sam Houston State University, eat them up cats. And... The freedom was just not good for me mm. as a 17-year-old, as a fresh 17-year-old. And I just partied so hard. I almost went on academic probation my first semester. I'm going to be honest about that. And so I just, you know, I didn't want to make my parents not proud. But because I had detached myself from the house, because it, at 14 and 15, I mean, I was sneaking out of the house. I was partying. I was doing drugs behind my parents' back, all these things I wanted freedom. I was longing for freedom and I was also longing for escape. Mm -hmm. I needed to get out of this house. I needed to stop seeing my mom so sick. I needed to not see my brothers ruin their lives. Like it just was too much. And so I thought if I remove myself from the situation, put myself through college, I can start over. But the truth is you take you with you. Mm -hmm. And so all the things that you've been through and all the things that you hold and all the behaviors that you've picked up along the way, atmosphere and environment can help but it can't change or Mm. transform. And so I went into college with the same party girl mentality. And when I realized that I'd be on academic probation out here, I kind of cleaned it up a little bit and started to get real focused. I also broke up with my crazy ex-boyfriend from high school. Mm. And so then I started to just live for me. And I said, you know what? I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be single. I may be a cat lady, even though I don't really like cats. Like that's who I actually aspire to be. The single, strong, independent black woman. So much had been taken from me. Watch me work. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't get over the whole guy thing. I just was sleeping with all kinds of guys from different school. I would go party at this school and this school, but I would get my grades out and then I would do drugs at night. Like mm-hmm. I was living this double life. And then I meet this guy at the end of my college career And all my friends are like, you're going to be single for the rest of your life. You know them friends. I'm like, sis, oh, well. But Mm. for the crew that I ran with, having a guy meant something, Mm. right? Like having a boyfriend, having someone you talking to, like it just meant something. And so I got a little jealous. I got a little insecure. And so this guy asked me out on a date. I was like, I'm down for the cause. I kind of sort of played hard to get. And then uh, next thing you know, we was having sex and all the other things. But I really thought it would be really great. And so three months into the relationship, he graduated and he was like, hey, I'm moving to Atlanta. And truth is, he was like, I'm moving to Atlanta and I don't know about this long distance thing. But I was so desperate Mm -hmm. to have a man that instead of going to law school, I took my scholarship money and I moved us to Atlanta. Wow. So you had gotten into law. Yep. I was in a pre-law fraternity. Wow. I was getting ready to go to U of H business law. And I was like, what do I need to do that? I got a man. Mm -hmm. Crazy. So I move and it was devastating. Mm. As soon as we got here, jealousy rose in him. We were fighting. He was ripping doors off the hinges, punching holes in the walls, like so crazy. But I couldn't tell my parents. Everyone that we knew in college was like, y'all are such bosses. You moved to a whole different state. Y'all are killing Mm. in Atlanta. And my performer's heart was like, you can't say anything. You Mm. can't mess this up. Protect your image. Mm. And so it's in this context Mm-hmm. You meet Jesus. I meet my actual true love. Mm. And it blew my mind. I went to this church. I was like, first one at the altar. Then the youth pastor at the time comes up to me. How did you get to, to the church? Because you up until this point, you're not, this isn't part of I the know. plan. I know. Yeah, I grew up Catholic and I didn't really know what I was doing. No. I actually snuck out of church all the time when growing up. It was so bad. My poor parents, they were like, please stop giving the teachers issues. And so... um, my husband at the time, his aunt and uncle went to this church. They invited us. They're like, y'all need to get into a church home. Like y'all to move different states. Like y'all young, you're not married. You need to get into a church home. And so 
we go to this church and I just fall in love with it. Oh my gosh. I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is the best church I've ever seen in my life. Like, this is so great. I'm giving my life to Jesus right now. I'm at the altar. The youth pastor connects with me afterwards, connects with both of us. And they're like, well, who are you guys? You guys look great. Y'all are a young couple. My ex-husband could sing. So they're like, maybe you should join the worship team. I'm crazy. So they're like, maybe you should come serve in the youth ministry. Like... And I ended up going to this like six week youth training thing to be a youth volunteer. And my first gig, if you will, is a lock-in. And I'm sitting down and I'm like freestyling with these kids and they're, they're like surrounding me. And the youth pastor is like, the Lord has called you here. And he just sees something in me that I just, I mean, I'm so blind to. But the kids love me probably partially because I smell like weed but also because I was just young and naive and fun. And I wasn't this like harsh, do this, the scripture, purity culture person, because I was still figuring it out myself. Mm. But they were so drawn to me that, you know, the youth leaders at the time were just like, these kids love her. Mm. And so I really started to try to, you know, walk a straight and narrow life for being a leader and helping these kids. But I still had so much trauma. Like I'd serve in the youth ministry and then go home and get high so I could numb the pain of everything. And then I was in this really hard marriage. And the more I excelled, the more aggressive he became. Mm. And so, you know, it just was hard. But I served in youth ministry for a long time, became a youth pastor, got ordained, started Mm. speaking in middle schools and high schools. I mean, it was crazy. And when you say like aggressive, he got aggressive or rage, what, what did that look like? Well, at first it was just like, you know, you're not better than me. You think people like you, but they don't. Like, Mm. you're this, you're that. So at first it was just like name calling and jealousy and Mm. all those things. And his moment of like anger, if we ever had an argument, like that's where he would go. Then it escalated to getting Mm. so mad, pulling the door off, Mm. punching a hole in the wall. And what's unfortunate about it is I've, I witnessed my dad be very verbally abusive to my mom, mm. especially when, you know, he had alcohol in his system and things like that. And so I thought it was normal. Mm. It's interesting because I have friends now who have never witnessed verbal abuse, never been subjected to that. And if they were to be in that situation, they would probably be like crying on the ground in the fetal position. But I had been groomed in that. Mm. So it actually didn't even phase me. My body was experiencing trauma, but my mind was like, well, this is normal. Mm. This is what, this is what love is. This is what marriage is. You just argue, you curse each other out. I mean, it is what it is. But I just loved Jesus. Mm. And there was just always this little vex in my spirit that was like, I don't think this is right. Mm. And then I get pregnant. Wow, that's quite the pivot. Now, I'm imagining these streams come together. Mm. So I'm curious when you, you know, (laughs) I don't think it's a coincidence that you talk about the birth of your daughter. So explain that and how that impacted your sanctification. I just never had had enough self-worth and confidence in myself to leave. I just didn't have it. Mm -hmm. I never had enough confidence to leave for myself. But when my little girl came, I remember we were driving in the car on the way to an Easter service and we had gotten into some kind of argument, probably about time, because I love to be on time. And my ex-husband just didn't really care. (laughs) And we started yelling in the car and screaming and cursing. And I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw fear in my daughter's eyes for the first time. And I just was like, I think I'm done. Because what I thought was maybe I'm not worthy of like a new life and another opportunity, but she really is. And my protector thing that God had cultivated as I took care of my mom, Mm -hmm. as I became a young caregiver, rose so strong. I mean, I literally went home over the next couple weeks, put all my clothes in white trash bags, told my ex, like, I am done. I am done. I'm done. I'm done. And you can figure out if you want to try to change. But for the next week, I'm taking me and Dylan, my daughter, and we're going to go live with some friends. I found a place to live with another single mom. It was this little old apartment and the room wasn't even big enough for a crib. So I had to put my daughter in a pack and play that was too small. And I didn't have a job. Like, I was just like, I'm done. I will figure it out. I went and found a job. And I prayed 
sincerely, earnestly, probably for the first time, Lord, show me a sign. I I want you to tell, is, is this right? Do I leave this marriage? Is this biblical? I don't even know. Like, help me. And I made this list of like pros and cons about my life and about my marriage. And I just felt this overwhelming peace that it was okay to leave. It was okay to seek safety. It was okay to go and get healthy for my daughter. And that's when my whole life changed. When we come back, Tony will share about how inspiration from her daughter landed her on a billboard in the middle of Times Square. That's coming next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Hey, y'all. Before we get back to our conversation with Tony Collier, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with Pastor James White. This is where you're from. But the thing that hit me is they really seem to have a love for Jesus. And what I noticed was in crew, I saw in some of these students wrestling with intellectual frameworks that were interesting and unique in explaining the gospel. However, the reason why I was able to respond is because Maude Shields and because Good Hope Amy Zion Church taught me to be a thinker. Right. So it wasn't because somehow that crew people were thinking and the black church wasn't. Mm. It was because of the framework of thinking and looking you at You had already been looking, primed. I had been primed for that. Right. And Russell, that saddens me that you have so many today who have the wrong misconception of the black church. Right. Now let's get back to our conversation with Tony Collier on where you're from. So one of the things that because you you write so much about brokenness and mm-hmm. and us embracing that aspect, I'm curious about the biblical people that yeah. you were drawn to and mm-hmm. can see that thread and draw inspiration from. Oh my gosh, John 8, 1 through 11. That was super big for me. It's the, you know, this woman that committed adultery and Jesus is like, I forgive you, go and leave your life of sin. And I think about that woman all the time Hmm. because holiness, sanctification, the mending of our brokenness, it doesn't happen by just reading the word, by just going to church. It doesn't happen with perfection even. It happens with proximity. Mm -hmm. And she was so close to Jesus that she got to taste holiness and then go live it out. And I think that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get so close to Jesus that I experience holiness and then I go and live it out. Mm -hmm. And it's only with proximity. And I just think that's the antidote to our brokenness is holiness. Wow. That's beautiful. And so you sounds like see yourself in that story. Yeah. You see Jesus asking you, does anybody condemn you? Where are your condemners? Where are they at? <laughs> Where are they at? So go and sin no more. Yeah. The go is the grace. The go is the grace. The sin no more is the truth. Come on. And I could see just the smile yeah. beaming, like that 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 yeah. intimacy was yeah. very transformative for you. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, first of all, God went from this like big mean God that I learned about. If you don't give your tithes, then he's mad <laughs> at you. He's like, if you're in the tunnel, if you're in like a, a valley of darkness, like he's at the end saying, Hurry up, mm. clean yourself up. Yeah. I'll be down here waiting for you. That's what I thought. Mm. When actually he's the light mm. that makes a way through. The darkness. So, and I just have to say this because there's another woman in the in the Gospels that Mm. you remind me of in the way that you talk about this love for Jesus. In Luke chapter seven, there's not Simon the disciple, but another Simon a Pharisee that 
Gosh. Jesus uh, is invited into his home. He basically treat miss you know just doesn't show him any hospitality this woman comes in kisses jesus's feet is weeping at his feet wipes his feet with her tears and they are upset about that uh-huh and he basically explains in verse 47 therefore i tell you her sins which are many are forgiven yes. for she yes. loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little and as you were sharing your story and, and just that aspect of just getting closer to Jesus, it's like you love much because you realize, and again, this is the thing, not that mm, you've been mm, forgiven more than me or anybody else, but the realization that this woman had of how much her sins were forgiven caused mm, her to have deeper appreciation and devotion to the Messiah. And that's what you were reminding me of as you shared your story. That story is so beautiful. What's interesting about the fact that her sorrow represented surrender, washing the rabbi's mm. feet, is that the very person that invited him that would be deemed as successful mm. didn't surrender. Mm. And that's the key. Like, it's not our success that gets us to perfection. It is going to be our surrender. Amen. And I just love that story so much. Yeah, me too. I'm so crazy that you said that. I love that. <laughs> So, okay, so you, you, you end up on the other side of this divorce. Yeah. And, you know, now all that you had been hiding is exposed. Yeah. It's it's out. So how do you go about building mm. on a new foundation? Well, I think I had to come up a little bit higher and think holistically, mm. like the full body and mind. And that's the thing that's very difficult for us, even in the church, is that we think, okay, just go get right with Jesus. It's going to be all good. Like it's going to be all good, throw a little scripture on it. And it's where we get the term spiritual bypassing and all the things. Because the gospel should not be like thrown. The gospel should be embraced, right? Like the word of God. Okay. I feel like that's an important phrase that I'm not okay. familiar with that I want to ask. Spiritual bypassing. Break spiritual that bypassing. What's that? So yeah, I know you're so upset that you're single, but the Lord says in Psalm 34 that you're close to the broken heart. He's so close to the broken heart and he revives those that are crushed in spirit. So it's going to be totally fine. No validation. And in the same Psalm, David is talking about, he's soaking his bed with tears mm. and he wants to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. You know mm. how weird it is to gaze at somebody for a little while? Mm. Try to stare at somebody. Try to stare your spouse in the eye for a little while, about five <laughs> minutes. It's very intimate. And so Jesus, I mean, he's, the savior, okay. and he's also the master of withness. Mm. And so if we're just like bypassing people's emotions by throwing a little scripture on it, we aren't being like Jesus either. Got it. And Got so it. I think what's been interesting about this journey in my life, it's like I've had to realize that it's not just about day to day with Jesus. He is my source and he has also given me access to resources. Mm. And so it is about trying to heal my mind. It is about figuring out how to eat with severe anxiety because I don't eat when I have really severe anxiety because I need to take care of my body so that I can be present and not have headaches and not be irritated with my children. And so I really had to look at my life as though each aspect of it was holy hmm. because it is, right? Yeah. Each aspect of our lives is holy, we can honor God with our money. We can honor God with our health, our mental health, how we process feelings. There's no way to get to the fruit of spirit of patience if you don't learn how to slow your mind down, hmm. slow your emotions down long enough to be patient. <laughs> you know, yes. I mean, come on. And so there was a lot of counseling. I put myself into counseling every week for two years. I even went to EMDR, which is mm -hmm. a trauma treatment. I've done I that. went to a betrayal trauma, 16-week betrayal trauma group. Mm. I've gone to multiple intensives. I've gone to a spiritual encounter that marries mental health with spiritual. I mean, and I'm still in counseling. In some seasons, I'm bi-weekly. Some seasons, I'm monthly. Right now, I'm weekly. Hello, somebody. And it's just because I don't trust my humanity. Mm. I am nuts. Mm. I just am not... Stable because I've been through so much. And while I have learned how to cope and how to be healthy, I have accountability and I have guardrails and I have things that I have in place to make sure that I don't backslide. Mm. Because it's easy to backslide when that's the majority of your life. Didn't get saved till I was 21, didn't start living right till I was 25. Mm. I'm only 32. Mm. I, I, <laughs> right. I'm a little baby right now mm -hmm. in living a righteous life, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And so I really had to approach it holistically and have community help me do it. That sounds beautiful. And mm -hmm. also, it sounds like your daughter has played a significant role 
in that process and her love for drawing and art. So mm. tell us about Dylan. Oh my gosh. I call her my nine-year-old strong-willed blessing that helps me sleep at night. She is so creative. And it's interesting because my ministry, Broken Crayon Still Color, really started from her ruining a whole bunch of crayons and still just like coloring with them. I mean, she had robbed them little crayons of their dignity. They were <laughs> naked, all their little clothes was off, all the things, you know? And I just, <laughs> in some of my darkest moments, I just remember seeing her on the floor with like little pieces of like crayon paper everywhere, just still coloring in her coloring book. Mm. And the Lord just so vividly gave me a vision for that. What would it look like if everyone knew that God was still creating beauty from brokenness? Mm. That actually he does his best work in the broken parts. Wow. It's what he's like the master of redemption. He's going after the one little scraggly sheep. Okay. Mm. Me. He's coming for me every day. Mm. And I just think that my life is now in service to the Lord and to my children. Mm. And my daughter, Dylan, she's resilient because she's seen some really hard things. She has a ton of behavioral challenges that we've had to work through with school. We've had to do homeschool virtual environments for her because it's just hard. She battles with anxiety. And to see her resilience every day just, oh my gosh, it ends me. Because she's so happy and she's been through so much in just her nine little years. Mm, that's, yeah. that's wonderful. Did, did she have an explanation about why she broke all these crayons? No, she just is wild, bro. Like she just <laughs> has always been that way. She's like, like my daughter's the one that has the Barbie dolls. And instead of like dressing them up in cute clothing, she wants to like cut their hair. Like yes. we need to switch it up here. Yeah. They come out looking scraggly. She's the one that like, I got her this brand new desk when we put her in virtual school. She just colors all over it. Like yeah. this just, she just is got like, it. oh, I'm about to make it new. Right. But, but you see, not. but again, and one, and, and this is how breaking the tradition and generation mm. of trauma is so powerful. Yeah. Because where one person can just see somebody messing up something that I paid uh -huh. for. Yep. You're able to, with the help of the Holy Spirit, with the work that you've done internally, see the creativity that's in mm. her to say, I can hook up Barbie's hair to make it better than it came out the box. Then it came out the box. And so what's the lesson that you get from seeing how she still was coloring with these mm. broken crayons? Well, it's first of all, it's that we're in partnership with God, hmm. right? Like a part of being a victim is thinking that you don't have control. Mm. Whoever's controlling you and whatever's going on in your life, you don't have control. But the truth is God's given us dominion and he never took that away. Mm. And we are co-laborers with him in helping to make beauty from these fragile, broken pieces of our lives. Mm. And so what I love so much about my daughter is that she just doesn't treat scraps as though they're not useful. And I remember one year, because I learned that from her, I was just like, I'm going to go after everything that God has for me, even the scraps, because mm. I want it all. Hey. I don't, I, mm-mm. Whatever he has for Take me. Take back everything the devil tries to say. Every see. crevice. Mm. And, and how much more does that benefit me, knowing that I'm a sinner and I'm imperfect and I'm wired for struggle, to know that God still uses broken things. It makes me more confident in myself, even when I mess up that, okay, we can turn this around. There's hope. It's hope. I love it. And so from that comes a book, Broken Crayon Still Color, in which a little girl named Avery is working through some things and has some mm. big emotions and breaks her crayons. And then the crayons come alive and start talking to her and helping her work through some stuff. Uh -huh. So how much is Avery like Dylan? And mm. how much is this experience something like what you feel like God has been teaching you? Yeah. So Dylan's middle name is Avery. Ha. <laughs> and the book is so for her. Mm. I mean, the little girl has a little gap like Dylan in her teeth, like <laughs> all the things. And we made her slightly different and we didn't name her Dylan. But I remember surprising Dylan for the first time with the book. And I mean, she was just like screaming. She couldn't believe it. The little hair is like puffy like hers. And we read the book together and I got it all on video, which was just so sweet and special. And I just remember her getting to the end. She's always known it because I've always told her. But, you know, a part of the book is just like God still takes messes and turns them into masterpieces. Mm -hmm. 
And she just was so delighted in that because it's what I've always said, you know, that broken crown still color, that God can still do something great in you, that doesn't matter how many mistakes you make, he is literally making things new for us. And I get a call or I get an email from my publisher of the kids book and they're like, hey, Amazon decided to put the book on a billboard in Times Square next to Penn Station. Uh. And I think it's because the prayers that we've prayed about this book is not that it would sell, but that it would reach kids all over the world so that we can start to help our kids live on the offense and not the defense when it comes to their feelings. Because we have just been operating on the defense with this. We are just now discovering that mad is not bad and our feelings matter and we can Mm. sit in sorrow like the psalmist did and God is still present in that. He's the God of witness. And we're, we're just like, we're trying to rewire ourselves. But what if we wired our kids in that way so that they don't have to correct it later on? Wow. And that's what this book is for. And so in our prayers, we're like, God, let it reach the kids. Let it reach the kids. And so for the second time in the history of my publishing company, one of their books is on a Times Square billboard. Mm. And it's clear that's a faith-based centered book, Mm. you know, but it's in the middle of Times Square. And I got to take my daughter to see it. And we just were screaming. And one of the things that I'll never forget is that she goes, we did it, mom. Mm. We did it. Because it's her story and it's my story and it's kids all over the world's stories and it's all of our stories that God still makes beauty from brokenness. Man, that is is a powerful image of seeing you and your daughter. And I'm hearing even the echoes of, you know, what you had to endure Mm. with your, your mom and so seeing this generational strength, yeah. y'all some strong people, by the way. We call it built for tough yeah. down in Texas. Got it, got it. Surprise. Y'all, y'all got it. So, you know, the story continues mm. with a man named Sam. Mm. Tell us about who that is. <laughs> <laughs> so after the divorce, I just, I genuinely thought like I had the whole, I'm going to be a lawyer kind of thing. Mm. Like I'm just going to go and be single I'm going to raise my daughter. And here stumbles in, you know, this guy that I met at North Point Community Church, who I really just met because I was consulting someone else on this like little ministry idea. And he just popped up at a meeting. And it's crazy because I, again, was not looking for a soul because I was like, "Mm -mm, I'm about to be independent out here, all the things. And I just remember us being in a restaurant and talking for six hours Mm. and being like, oh my goodness, like we're the same human being. Like this is kind of crazy. And so it's been redemptive because Sam helped me with a lot. I checked myself into counseling, but I didn't have a whole bunch of money. Mm. So Sam literally paid for my counseling. Mm. And if that's not an investment into the future of somebody, shoot, I don't know what is. Mm. And Sam introduced me to North Point Community Church and Chick-fil-A and all these other opportunities when I never thought I would do ministry again because mm. I low-key hated the church, kind of, sort of, but I love Jesus. Because of and what so, happened and how they both Yeah, the just how they handled everything and, and, and then the pastor yeah. was doing crazy stuff. Right. I was like, oh, okay, I'm out. Let me say this, not impossible, but I think it's difficult to love Jesus and not his bride. Mm. And so I went back to church and- now I'm standing on stages all around the world and it's just, it's crazy. And it's been redemptive. I, I want to take a bit of a deep detour. Come on, I, let's do I, it. Hold on to that redemptive thread. Um, we're going to get there. It. But because I think so many people can identify mm. and relate to the sure. realness that you shared about both, you know, the very public nature. And again, especially we got to call this out, the misogynistic way in which Ugh. when women, you know, have something, the weight of all the judgment seems to land a lot harder than the men. Like saying, going yeah. all the way back to John chapter eight, because where was the dude? The Last time I checked, adul- adultery takes two people. Hello, Only somebody. one was brought before Jesus. Still, Hello, the legalistic still doing anything. But in any case, yeah. having said that, like a lot of people can relate to that experience, mm. help them. And since you mm. do think it is so much easier and, and more robust to love yeah. Jesus in the context of the church, mm. how did you get from experiencing that pain 
to mm, being mm, brought mm. back into a context of communal worship and fellowship? Yeah. I mean, first, I think there was responsibility and awareness and then forgiveness. Mm. The responsibility and awareness was, you got to understand, I come from a traumatic past with men. I'm predisposed to longing for male leadership, to longing for a man to see me. And so when I got to this church, the pastor became my savior, but not Mm. Jesus. Mm. And I put him on a pedestal that he never should have been on in the first place. And so when he did spiritually abusive things, like tell me that if I ever left the church, then I would be leaving my purpose because my purpose was connected to him. Mm as a human being. I know, very dark, very just manipulative, like just weird. And when he fell and a lot of these things came out and unfortunately he's still doing ministry, it's just, it's hard. I had to take responsibility for the fact that I have put him in the place of my savior. And the reason why it hurts so bad is because he had been nestled into this space in my heart that Jesus belonged What's great is when you get that right is that Jesus never lets you down. So then it doesn't hurt as bad. Mm. But that church hurt oftentimes comes from unmet expectations. And unmet expectations are not like a, well, he was right, I was wrong. No, it's like you expected righteousness. You expected someone to be perfect sometimes. And we can't. And that's hard. And as leaders, we have to be very mindful of the way that we lead people mm-hmm. and, and how honest and truthful we are about the things that we're struggling with to get them out of the dark. And then after that, I had to forgive myself mm-hmm. for being so naive and for not having a strong enough faith to believe that Jesus was enough and I actually didn't need validation from a pastor. And I had to forgive him for being human. And when you do that, you get the ownership back Mm. because you must be out your mind if you think that I'm going to allow a person who just wears the badge of pastor to dictate, thwart, or diminish my faith. You you must be out your mind Mm. if I'm going to let a human do that. And I think for many of us, we've done that. And we're like, I'm not going back to church because people. I'm like, wow, you really going to let people Mm. diminish your faith? Thank you for sharing that because that's a deep end type stuff and it's mm-hmm. nuanced, it's layered. You know, I think sometimes there's this pendulum of either totally victimizing a victim and making yeah. no type of uh, space for challenging and calling out authority or yeah. vesting so much expectation and standard mm. in an authority figure that when that person breaches trust, we validate and affirm someone walking away from institutions and all. And I think that the way you held those things together, because there's Mm -hmm. nuance, it's both a self-reflection and an accountability that all needs to be there is is beautiful. Okay. Yeah. So back to the redemptive thread that you were on. Yeah, man. It's been beautiful. You know, we have a son, sweet little Mm. Sammy. Oh my gosh. I can't even, I just want to melt in my seat. I'm like, (laughs) bye. I'm leaving the podcast now. I want to go see my son because I mean, his story is that of redemption, Mm. you know, and so is Dylan's in so many ways. And it's this new, beautiful, cutie little life that I mean, gosh, I'm so glad that I'm a boy mom. Like, it's so awesome. But let me tell you a redemptive part of having a second kid, being in a more stable environment. I was walking through Target one day and I rolled past like the diaper section and there were like these cutie little diapers that had like little designs on it. And I didn't need any diapers, but I was like, oh, I want to try those. That's so, they're so cute for him. And I get a pack and I get to the checkout line and something just hits me like, you're buying diapers. Because when Dylan was born, all of my diapers came from my parents, Mm. my baby showers, and this pregnancy center that I was going to because I didn't have a lot of money and I was on Medicaid. Mm. And I went to these classes and becoming a first time parent and they would give us these like little tickets Mm -hmm. so we could go shop in like the resale shop for our kids. And so we didn't have money. I was on WIC. I was on food stamps. I was just, we just didn't have anything. And so diapers were just hard. Like I just, by the grace of the Lord in that season, he literally had supplied like a year's worth of diapers to us at that time. And now I'm in a position where I'm getting diapers because they're cute. <laughs> and if that ain't redemption, 
to be able to buy your kid diapers when you want, mm. I don't know what is. It's the little things that are actually kind of big things. Well, you got to notice them. Yeah. That's the key of gratitude. Mm. You just got to notice. You got to remember. That's so good. Well, you know, there's this word. I'm going to give you the definition and I'll see if you can figure out what word is. Oh, uh, I'm nervous. Force of character, determination, or nerve. Is it moxie? It is. <laughs> you got <laughs> I it. I almost said grit. I almost <laughs> said grit, which is one and the same in some ways. So what about unshakable moxie? What comes to <gasps> mind when I say that phrase? <laughs> well, at first, you know, oh my man, I'm getting like real revved up because unshakable to me means that you cannot be moved. And mm. what, as our Christian walk, you know, what we're moved by, mm. unfortunately, is the enemy. Yeah. And so when you put unshakable in front of Moxie, what you're saying is, oh no, playa. <laughs> with every temptation, with every doubt, with every evil whisper, I will not be moved. Mm. You cannot shake me to the point where I'm so fragile that mm. I give up. So tell us about the production you've been involved with called oh Unshakable Moxie. Gosh. Let me tell you, I equal parts believe that God has created men in such a beautiful way. Mm. The warrior nature, like, oh, I just, I literally adore it. I love it. And I equally believe that the Lord has created women with a voice mm -hmm. and with a very specific design. There's a reason why this man and woman is very, two very different designs. But we collectively make up the one true God and all his characteristics if we are made in his image. And so it's been very fun for me to be in an environment that's made for women and for the next generation of women. And we're getting to interview women about what God's been doing in their life. And so being in a, a woman-led space, creating something for women, it's been beautiful because one, we've seen how it's impacted men. So mm. to see men on the production team crying, you know, listening to what we're talking about and to see them be like, man, I'm going to raise my daughter differently because mm. of what I experienced on this set. It's made for women, but it's going to impact the whole world mm. because you're going to have fathers that say, oh my goodness, I missed that about my daughter. Let me go speak life into her. Mm. You're going to have husbands that say, maybe I've been a little jealous of my wife and I need to maybe celebrate her and what God's doing in her anyway. And then you're going to have women mm. who have been in the pits and the valleys and had no hope. Mm. And they're going to hear these stories of unshakable moxie in women all over the world that look like them, that don't look like them, that come from the same background as them, that don't, they're going to connect and realize that unshakable moxie plays no favors. It's for all of us. And that's going to be cool. <laughs> yeah. So in this production produced by Our Daily Bread and yeah. specifically conceptualized by Julie Richardson, shout out to Julie. Amazing. Love you, Julie. You and your co-host Mariah yeah. go and talk to some phenomenal dynamic mm -hmm. women mm -hmm. whose stories of unshakable moxie yeah. serve as both inspiration and mm. even hopefully a model. And yeah. there's several episodes that, you know, uh, by the time of this uh, being released will be available for folks yeah. to tune in and listen to. And we have something in common in this because I yeah. did a series with Our Daily Bread called mm -hmm. In Pursuit of Jesus that was yes. also about six episodes and oh where we went around the world talking to people about Jesus. Right? Right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, one yeah. of the worst questions that people ask is, what was your favorite? It's like trying to pick between my children, oh, right? Like telling me, like, who my you like better, Sam Jr. or Dylan? Like, come right. on, that we ain't doing that. Like. That ain't thing. I know. So I I'm know. not going to ask you that, but I will okay, ask good. you about someone whose story maybe encouraged and challenged you. Ooh, man, Lena Abu Jamra. Mm. That was a hard one because she talks about this idea of her voice as a woman being diminished by the church, mm. and that's hard. Yeah. Like that's a hard thing yeah. to wrestle through on so many levels. Right. Theologically, what people believe about women's voices in the church, like emotionally, mentally, mm. like it really just attacks the core of who we are as women. And so that was a very challenging one that I was just like, wow. Like mm. we had a moment in that episode where we was just past the tissues. Mm. We need to stop the episode because it almost all culminated to this moment of realizing that Lena and the way that she is living in Unshakable Moxie was from the depths of like real identity crushing things. Mm. 
And that's hard when your identity has been questioned. The thing that God's gifted you with mm. has been questioned and damaged. Yeah. The one that I was impacted by, and I think even challenged in a different way, was hearing mm. Dr. Bernice King. And that's my first. See, that's it's hard for me because we we literally do life with Dr. Bernice King. Okay. So I'm just like, I've heard all these stories before. It's still in there. Oh my gosh. It's mind blowing to sit with her. And I think for me, it was because like, you know this iconic person, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., her father, oh. Coretta Scott King, her mother, mm -hmm. and you know their role in these iconic, it's almost crazy. mythological figures in our yep. culture, right? And you know of the tragedy of the yeah. loss and what that meant for the nation, literally yeah. uprisings and riots all mm. over the country. I'm from Philly. North oh, Philly yeah. still has burnt out buildings that date back to 1968 as a oh reaction of the, the King assassination. So like, you know all that, but the thing that I never really sat <laughs> with before is yeah. the impact on that little girl. On that little girl. Who's being held by her mother, who mm, is also real. grieving this loss. And what that meant to have to live through life and figure that out yeah. while there's these echoes. Normally, when somebody has a death or some type of moment, it's like, you know, the date, but it's like a private date. And you got to kind of <laughs> tell people like, yo, this yeah. is an important day for me. Uh -huh. This day is a literal like national moment, holiday. national moment that mm -hmm. people respond to and reflect on in April yeah. and in every January. And so, like, I'm curious about what you have taken away from yeah. that relationship and that friendship that has also formed you, especially as you talk about trauma yeah. and acknowledging it and as a mm -hmm. way of being brave enough to be broken. Well, here's what I want to make sure that I point out, and I'm always very mindful of this conversation because you got to understand, I grew up in Houston, mm -hmm. very diverse, competitive cheerleader, a lot of white friends, a lot of Mexican friends, <laughs> Asian, I mean, just in this bubble. And so I moved to Atlanta and it ain't that. And it's weird. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even realize there's so many black people in the world. And I was so ignorant. There was even a moment when I was like, I just don't understand why black people are so mad still. Mm. Naive, ignorant, which can be very damaging. By the grace of the Lord, I got introduced to the King family. And it has changed me. Mm. Because on the other side of racial division and tension are just God's sons and daughters mm. suffering, mm. being uninvited, being abused. Mm. And God's so angry at that. Mm. And you got to understand, Dr. Bernice King, she's the best of them. If racism is what killed her dad, like evil killed her father, and then she fights for equality. Mm. She doesn't fight for revenge, mm. vengeance. She doesn't fight for inequality so that black and brown people in America and beyond will have their fair shot. She fights for good mm. for everybody. Yeah. And the courage that that takes mm. to fight for a, a real authentic rebalancing where earth looks like heaven, mm versus anger and rage and vengeance of, well, we need to get ours. Right. After you lost your father to it, as a little girl, he never got to see you graduate. Mm. <laughs> like, woo. And you're still at the King Center, mm. sitting in the pew where you watched your dead father be mm. buried. Mm. I don't, that's... That's bravery. Yeah. I, I have not seen it yeah. as strong as that. I've yes. not seen it. Same, same. And, you know, there's another constant in Unshakable Moxie, and that's Mariah, mm. your co-host. Tell us a little <sighs> bit about that. And just especially because y'all didn't know each other before. Not at all. And oh, no, we were so, like, well, this is going to get weird. <laughs> so tell me about the journey of going from not knowing who this person was to where you are now. Yeah. Well, thankfully, we're both extroverted and we like don't meet a stranger. So that <laughs> worked out really well. But also God like ordained us to be together. Mm. And there's a moment in one of the episodes, I won't tell you which one because you need to watch them all. Where we are in Tennessee and we are on this carousel 
and we're being the Teletubbies that we are bopping around on these little like horses in this carousel. And on the bottom of each horse or statue, lion, all the little animals in this carousel, there are these little plaques of people that have donated money to build the carousel. So she hops on a little horse or something. And then I hop on a horse and she's like, oh, look at these little names. And I look down and mine says Mariah. Mm. M-O-R-I-A-H, which is a very unique spelling Mm -hmm. and is the same spelling as Mariah, my Mm co-host. And it's in that moment where I was like, this is not about, oh, I met a new friend. This is about... God saying, I've put the two of you together. I've crossed your paths and you'll never be the same because of each other. Mm. And that's really, really kind of God. Mm -hmm. It's really kind of him. Wow. So you have kind of alluded to this, but you've, Mm -hmm. you know, written not just the children's book, Broken Crayons, Still Color, but you also wrote Brave Enough to Be Broken and have a whole organization of helping people, I think especially women, like be whole in the midst of brokenness. Tell us about that and how folks can... Find the things. Yeah. Yeah, I love Brave Enough to be Broken. And my publishers were like, are you sure you want the subtitle Embracing Pain? I was like, (laughs) I do. I do want it because I just believe we have to acknowledge our pain. Mm. We have to acknowledge what's happened to us. And that is so hard and it's so painful. But healing is not linear. And it is extremely painful, but Mm. it's so worth it. Mm. It's so worth it to look more like Jesus. It's so worth it to be better for your spouse and your kids and your friends and your own self. It's so worth it. And so Brave Enough to be Broken is really a roadmap. It's a guide to healing. And we polled all these, about a few hundred women of what their healing journey looked like. And we found the consistencies. And then I wrote this book. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of story, but not much because I can tell my story all day on the podcast, on the stage, on the YouTubes. It's all over the place. But what people really need is a roadmap. Mm -hmm. They need to know, well, how do I heal? How do I get this right? And so that's what that is. And it's just been awesome to be able to watch people say, I read your book in less than four hours and I have a game plan now and I'm going to go get better. And that's what that's about. This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Ryan Clevenger and Mary Jo Clark. Also want to thank Rhonda Holdip and Toria Keys for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.